My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. Uh, I get the privilege of continuing to lead us in our series where we take a look at who Jesus is, seek to grow our affections for him, and learn to love like he loved. Today we're going to be looking at John 6 and the passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll have someone come down the aisle and uh, they'll give you a Bible. If you need to keep that Bible, if you uh, don't have one, go ahead and keep that one. It's our gift to you. Um, otherwise, go ahead and open up to John 6. So today we're going to be looking at a passage that is very familiar to many of us. At least the story is familiar to many of us. The story of Jesus taking a few loaves of bread, a few fish, and feeding the masses, feeding 5,000. It's, it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So it must have made a huge impression on the disciples as they were there and they saw this moment. And many of us, while, we're under, while we understand the story, we've heard the story, we might not be familiar with the context. So in order for us to like dive into the context and know what the backdrop is of this story, uh, I want us to do a little thought experiment for a moment. So here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you discuss something with a few people. I want you to answer this question with a few people around you. What is the most restful place that you've ever experienced? So in other words, if you had to leave here today and go on a retreat and find a place to rest, and you could go anywhere, where would you go? What's the most restful place? So go ahead and discuss with a few people, and I'll bring us back in a moment. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back in. So let's do a little survey here. In this place that you imagined, how many of you imagined a mountain nearby where you are? All right. How about uh, a body of water, like a river, lake, something like that? Any, who in here did not have a mountain or any body of water? Yeah, just, there you go. Your bed. All right. All right. Surprised you made it to the 11 o'clock service. But with that sort of enthusiasm. Yeah, when we think about a places of rest, we think about places like beautiful mountains or bodies of water like lakes or oceans. And today, when we're looking at the passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000, 
The context is that Jesus is in, on a vacation, taking some rest in a place that was a beautiful place, a place that was a lake. It was the Sea of Galilee, which was actually more like a lake, a giant lake. And he's there with his disciples up on the mountain trying to get a little bit of a retreat. It says in Mark 6, uh, the parallel passage that also talks about the feeding of the 5,000, just before they go out to, to this place, it says, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going. That's like many people were coming and going and needing help from Jesus. And they had no leisure even to eat. They didn't even have a moment to take a bite of a sandwich. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So, so Jesus is going to his spot, his spot with his disciples. And, and Jesus' popularity at that point has been growing because he's been healing people and they're trying to find him everywhere he goes. But also, it's not just the volume of work that he has, it's the intensity of the season of life that he looks around and says to his disciples, we need to get some time alone. Let me just set the scene, it's Passover. Passover was one of the most significant holidays, a big a meal, a feast, where you celebrated God delivering his people out of the tyranny of Egypt. And, and so imagine that the season that they're in is like Christmas times 10. But it's not just that it's the holiday season. It's the fact that the increasing pressure of Rome's oppression has many people talking and thinking about revolution about how to overthrow this oppressive dictatorship of, of Rome that's, that's harming God's people. And they're looking for a leader. They're looking for someone to come and to lead them out of this. So it's not just like Christmas, but it would be like Christmas during the American Revolution. Weighty stuff is going on. And if, if the holiday season, if uh, the spirit of like revolution and war, it wasn't enough, there was some mourning and grieving going on because John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, his forerunner, the one he was close to, has just been assassinated in a foolish political game. And so it's like the combination of, of wartime mentality with the craziness of Christmas, with the busyness of work, and the weight of the funeral, and the disciples just needed to go and get some rest. Imagine being with Jesus in that spot that you, that you were thinking about earlier, that restful place. Imagine getting rest, being with the people that you love, taking a deep breath that you really need, and then all of a sudden you look and you see down the mountain a little ways something that you can't tell what this is, but as it gets closer and closer, it looks like a lot of people. All of a sudden, you realize this is about five to 10,000 people who are coming into your place of rest, who are wanting things from you. They need to be healed. They have different problems, and they're all coming to you, interrupting your place of rest in order to get some help. How would you react? How would you feel? This is the setting in which Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. The Mark account talks about how he looks over at this crowd 
and he has compassion on them. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll walk through what Jesus does in this moment. Verse 1 says, After Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, um, a large crowd was following him. They were just trying to figure out everywhere where Jesus went and follow him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. It makes sense that they would be following him. People that they loved were sick and Jesus had the power to heal. But then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It makes sense to us that Jesus would have compassion. It would make sense to us that Jesus wants to feed the 5,000, these people who probably were on a journey and were weary and there wasn't food nearby. But what might not make sense to us and certainly didn't make sense to the disciples in this moment is Jesus, the one who's been performing miracles, looks over at Philip and he says, where are we going to buy bread for all of these people? Imagine what it would be like to be Philip in that moment. Jesus turns Philip the disciple into Phil the project manager. <laughs> and he says, how are we going to solve this problem? And Philip, he has a reasonable reaction, right? In verse, in verse 6, it says that Jesus said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he's drawing Philip into his process. Philip didn't know that Jesus was testing him. He said, Philip answered him, and he said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be even enough for each of them to get a little. In other words, the project manager's looking at the spreadsheet. He's saying, we don't have the budget for that, Jesus. You're the miracle worker, and you're looking at me, the project manager, saying, how are we going to do this? You can imagine if you were in Philip's situation, you might be a little frustrated, having the sense that, that Jesus is putting something on you that only he can bear. And I know that a lot of us, we can have moments like that. I have moments like that where it feels like Jesus, the one who can solve these problems, who can do miracles, who can change lives, is putting weight of responsibility on me that I can't bear. And I'm actually a little bit frustrated. Why are you doing this, Jesus? But what you see Philip doing here, or Jesus doing with Philip, is he can clearly handle this situation on his own. But he's actually inviting the disciples, inviting Philip, inviting uh, others to step in and to participate in his mission with him. His mission of compassion and love to serve these 5,000 people. He will not do it on his own with the snap of the finger. Not because he couldn't, but because he's wanting to invite the disciples with him. So the project manager, he gives his opinion. Then another disciple pipes in with verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now what's hilarious about this is nobody asked Andrew for his opinion. <laughs> he just chimes in. Jesus was talking to Phil, the project manager, you know, not Andy over in marketing over here. 
But I actually, the more I read this response, the more I love this response. Because it's a conflicted response. On one hand, he's saying, well, this kid, he's got a lunchbox here that's full of some stuff, and that's not going to cover people. But then on the other hand, think about the absurdity of the statement. Philip's already just talked about how we've got eight months wages, and that's not enough for all these people. And then Andrew chimes in with his brilliant idea, we can take the lunch money from the kid. <laughs> and then kind of mid-sentence, he's like, ah, but that's not going to be enough. But what's incredible in this moment, what I love about Jesus in this moment, is he looks at Andrew and he says, all right, that's the plan. We're gonna roll with that. Have you ever thought about how absurd it is that the feeding of the 5,000 with this, these five loaves of bread and two fish, that that's not even Jesus's idea in the moment. That's Andrew's idea and he says, Jesus, can you work with this? And when we're talking about bread and fish, oftentimes we have kind of like a romantic idea of that, but the barley loaves that were used here were, it was kind of like the food of the poorest of the poor. It could grow in any soil, and therefore it was like the bare subsistence food. Also the fish, the fish weren't like these like, you know, luscious, big, you know, trout, fresh caught sort of thing but they were like sardines. They were small fish that were caught and preserved with salt, probably. And, and so when we're thinking about the lunchbox in this moment, this kid is not pulling out some artisan brioche with a side of sushi or anything like that. He's pulling out ramen and sardines. And Jesus is saying, ramen and sardines in my hands is something that I could do with. We're not and by the way, it's not like the fancy ramen that's popular now. It's like the prison food ramen that, that my brother who's in prison really loves. He says this, the ramen is where it's at in the prison. That's what it is. It's the, it's the least expensive, poorest of the poor uh, food that Jesus in his hands can take and multiply and use to bless others. Think about the brilliance of this. This insufficient substance that cannot get the job done, Jesus is willing to take and to use and to multiply for the love and the, and the feeding of multitudes. And oftentimes with us, I think when we are thinking about what does it look like to love like Jesus, to serve Jesus, to love others, we can often have these grandiose ideas, these big visions, we're waiting for this big moment. But really, what Jesus is inviting us into is to take the smallness of the little things that we have, our words, our time, the little skills that we picked up here and there, our conversations, our presence, these fish sandwiches of our life, and saying, if you, if you bring them to me, I want to use them in my mission to love others. I had, I've had some experience with this over the last few years, watching people do this well. I think of my friend Roy, the one guy I know who bought a truck specifically so that he could help other people move. Most of you sell trucks so that you don't have to help people move. But my friend Roy, he said, I'm buying a truck. I don't have much, but what I am doing right now is I'm buying a car and Jesus, could you use that in some way? 
And so he bought this old truck that could get beat up. And every, every Saturday morning, he made himself available to anyone who had a friend of a friend of a friend who was moving. And the love of Christ that people encountered with the way that he made the bread and fish of his Saturday mornings available to others was profound. And Roy actually, he inspired me. Um, you know, I didn't buy a truck specifically for that reason. But I was thinking about um, my car and praying through my car. And, and, and I think it's a good practice to do to pray over the different things of your life and saying, Jesus, how could this thing be leveraged for the sake of my neighbor, this simple thing? And so I was praying about my car. And one of the ideas that came to mind as I was praying is that I could sign up for Uber and be an Uber driver and, and ask Jesus, Ask the presence of Jesus to enter these conversations in the car uh, that we're doing as I'm driving Uber. And so this idea came that I would drive and then whatever money I made from the, from the rides would be donated to something. But I wasn't choosing what was, it was being donated to. I was having the passengers vote on a number of different options of where the money would go. And my prayer in this was that Jesus would use the simple things of my little car and my silly questions to have a profound moment of blessing for others. And over the last few years, I've noticed this is one of my favorite things in the world because Jesus can use things like that for the love of another. And we've had so many profound conversations in the car as people, as, people, as I ask them, why did you choose that? Why did you vote for that nonprofit? And then they start talking about the brokenness of the world and what they think, how they think it could be made right. And we've had these rich encounters, so many of them like ending in prayer and some of them in tears. And one, one time there was a guy even who uh, we had a long drive and I could tell he was wrestling with weighty questions. And about halfway through the conversation, he told me that on the flight, he had been asking big questions about God, about his life, and really deeply wrestling with some challenging things in his own heart. And that in that moment, some of those things were being answered. And when we pulled over and I hit the little button that ends the ride, he said, this was one of the most profound, important conversations of my life. And that didn't have to do with anything with me. I'm a poor driver. I'm just trying my best. I asked some pretty ridiculous questions in the process. But the reality was that Jesus was at work in his life and was going to work in his life no matter what. He was at work in his life on that airplane. But the presence to say, Jesus, here's my car. Can I join you in your mission? He said, yes. I'm going to incorporate that into what I'm doing with this guy in this moment. And so the reality is, oftentimes we overlook the lunch boxes. We overlook the ramen of our life. We overlook the simple things, our front yard, our car, our 45 minutes between classes, our, um, our sports coaching, all those sorts of things. We overlook them and say, Jesus doesn't want to deal with that small thing. But that's the exact type of stuff that Jesus wants in his hands to use as his instrument of love. So Philip and Andrew, they're astonished that Jesus would go 
with the lunchbox idea and feed the multitudes. So then we see in John 6, we see with verse 12, after they had had their feast, it says, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up all the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. See, what's happening here is that people finish up their meal. They're astonished at this miracle that's happened, and they're starting to wonder. They're starting to make some connections in their mind. Having just been in the season of Passover, they're thinking about the days when God led his people out of Egypt and he used a prophet like Moses to deliver them out. They're thinking about the way that when God's people were in the wilderness, how he provided for their daily food through this thing called manna, this, this bread that would miraculously appear each day to provide them their food. And they're thinking about these passages, like in Deuteronomy 18, how it talks about one day there will be a prophet that will come who will be like Moses, who will do little miracles like manna, and will do this to lead God's people. And they start to wonder, are we in the presence of the one who has come? Are we in the presence of the prophet who's going to deliver us, of the, of the king who is going to make things right for us in our brutal situation. And it really starts to hit home once they start collecting the food and they realize that Jesus hasn't just sufficiently covered lunch for everybody, but he has abundantly done it. And each disciple has a basket full of leftover fish sandwiches. And as they're looking at that, they might have been reminded of how in the Old Testament, with the, the manna that, that came from God, the bread that came from God, he, he made a rule that you couldn't save it from one day to the next. And you're seeing in this moment, Jesus enacting this analogy, dramatizing that he is the one who provides the manna. He is the one who is the manna, the bread from heaven. But it's even more abundant and rich than in the days of Moses. And so they get fired up. And they say, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. But then something peculiar happens. Because if you're following the arc of how most stories go, this is the moment where Jesus becomes king, he kicks out the Romans, and then he saves the day. That's how most stories work. But that's not how this story works. Verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew to a mountain by himself. Incredible. I mean, first of all, my first question when I read this is, how do you force someone to be a king? Seems like a hard thing to force them to do. Like, we demand that you tell us what to do. Like, that, that dynamic is really hard. But second, who among us, if, some, if like a whole stadium full, think of ASU basketball game when they're playing well, full of people, demanding that you be in charge, who would be like, no thanks, I'm going to go back to my retreat. That's what Jesus does here in this moment. Why does he do that? What's going on with Jesus in that moment? So he disappears. 
Then I'll kind of narrate what happens next in John 6. He puts his disciples on a boat and they head back on the Sea of Galilee. They get about halfway out there and that's actually when they see Jesus walking on water and he rescues them in that moment. And then they get to the other side and then people who had been fed, the crowds, the masses who are looking for Jesus, they realize that all of a sudden he can't be found. So they jump in their little boats and they're like chasing Jesus. Um, they're trying to find him. Like, I, you know, I have this, uh, this picture in my mind of them just like going across the lake, just trying to find Jesus wherever he's at. And when they find him, they begin this, this long sort of dialogue that happens in John 6 that we're going to highlight a few parts of. We're not going to go into the depth of it, but just draw a few things. So when they see him in verse 25, this is what they say. It says, they found him there on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father has set his seal. So first of all, he doesn't even answer the question. They're like, when did you get here? How did you, how did you do this? And then Jesus launches right in to a discourse about the state of their heart. He said, the reason why you're after me is not because you want to encounter God, to follow Yahweh, our God. It's not because you want to, to, to know me as the one who is your king and the one who is your Messiah. But you are following me because you want some bread. You want me to be the little bread genie to follow you around and give you a bagel whenever you're hungry. And Jesus isn't having it. He's telling them that that's your motive. But I'm not going to let you live with that motive. He loves them so much that he's telling them that there's a deeper dynamic than, that's happening here. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He's talking here about the reality that you can set that artisan brioche out on the counter for a week, and eventually it's going to get some mold, and it's going to get hard and crumbly, and it's no longer a feast. But the one who is standing in their presence is a feast who will satisfy them eternally. But you can see what's going on here. They, they don't want Jesus, the, the satisfaction of their soul. They want Jesus, the bread maker genie. They want to use Jesus. That's how they want to relate to him. They don't want the real Jesus. And I think oftentimes we can have that dynamic too, right? We can be around Jesus things and relate to Jesus in such a way that we want him to give us stuff. There's different ways we do it. We do Jesus the nanny, right? Oftentimes we get around church stuff because we want our kids to, to grow up and to be moral and those sorts of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is more than a nanny who's helping out with your kids. Jesus is the one that your kids need and you need. <laughs> Jesus, the motivational speaker. We like to have Jesus' nice little words that we can read whenever we're feeling down or something that gets us amped up so that we can do good work. 
And doing good work is good and attending to our emotions is good. But we need something deeper than that. We need to know Jesus, not just know the success that he brings. And then we just think of Jesus in general like a genie. Someone that you don't really relate to often, but who's just kind of around. And whenever you're in a bind, you get a few wishes from him if you read your Bible enough or something like that. But that's not the dynamic that is the true feast for our soul. Jesus is not the motivational speaker. He's not the genie. He's not the coach. He's not the lobbyist. He's not the nanny. He is our king. And on him the Father has set his seal. And so Jesus, and, and he launches into this, this long sort of sermon where he's taking the theme of, throughout the Old Testament of bread and he shows how he is actually the bread of life. At this crucial moment in his speech, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He's saying, you know how, how, how manna was what sustained the life of the people, of God's people? You know how God in his scriptures talk about come to me, eat and be satisfied? I am the ultimate fulfillment of that. And Jesus introduces himself to them as the feast that they have been looking for, the feast of their souls. So when we look at this, we think it's nice, right? It's a nice image that Jesus is the bread of life. But if you've been around church stuff long enough, it's kind of an analogy that feels a little bit old, feels a little bit stale, if you will, right? Wait for it. There it is. Dad joke. There you go. Appreciate it. Uh, this is my favorite person in here now. But oftentimes we don't think about what does that actually mean that Jesus is like bread? It's kind of wild. So I'm going to finish up here in a moment and give you a few reflections on what that means. But before I do, I want to kick one more question back to you. I want you to discuss with a few people around you, in what ways is Jesus like bread? How is Jesus like bread? So go ahead and discuss that with a few people around you, and then I'll wrap us up here in a moment. All right, let's draw it back in. Now, I'm sure some of you have come to the conclusion that Jesus rises just like bread does with the yeast. Uh, 
That's not where I'm going. That's not where I'm going. The only reason I bring that up is because last hour, six people came up to me afterwards and said I missed that point. And so I wanted to get that out of the way right now. But let me close with this, three ways that Jesus is like bread. Number one, Jesus is the difference between life and death. Number two, Jesus supplies the strength for all of life. And number three, Jesus satisfies our deep hunger. So let's start with number one. Jesus is the difference between life and death. Now it's interesting, in our culture, we often don't think of bread as a symbol for life. As a matter of fact, these days it's probably more of a symbol of death. Like it's got gluten in it, it has carbs, you know, it's something that you maybe put on the end of the plate as a treat, but it is not a symbol of life, it's gonna kill you, right? But in those days, bread was synonymous with life. Bread was the, the bare minimum food that if you had it, if you were poor, if you were facing famine, it was the difference between life and death. To have bread meant that you and your family would continue to live even in the midst of the harshest circumstances. And even in, in Semitic cultures today, the word um, bread is often the same word as life. It's, it's the food that sustains you, that keeps you from death. It's the difference between life and death. And in the same way, when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, he is saying that he is the difference between life and death. Apart from him, our souls are corrupted by death. We don't have life. We are spiritually in starvation. But Jesus comes as the feast that reanimates us and gives us life and makes us alive to God and to the world. And he does that by giving the bread of his body broken on the cross. Jesus is the difference between life and death. Second is that Jesus supplies the strength for all of life. We talk a lot about how all of life is all for Jesus. We talk about how our work, our art, our parenting, all of the different aspects of life are opportunities to glorify God and to love our neighbors and that they have meaning and value, and that is absolutely true. But before we can ever say that all of life is all for Jesus, we must say that all of our strength must come from Jesus. Our strength for all of life must come from Jesus. And just as each day you go to food to give you the, the strength uh, the carbohydrates, the proteins that are allowing you to exist right now, and that fuel all of the work that you do. We cannot do the good works that Jesus calls us to do unless we have a steady diet of feasting on Jesus, the bread of life. And finally, number three, that Jesus satisfies our deep hunger. Most of us, if we're being honest, we know that bread isn't just functional, it's delicious. <laughs> and, and that when you are really hungry, having a nice, delicious bread, uh, piece of garlic bread is so deeply satisfying. You're not doing it to stay alive. <laughs> you, you're doing it to feast. 
And the reality is, is that Jesus isn't just functional. He doesn't just keep us alive, and he's not just a source of strength. But he is the one for whom our soul craves, our lives crave and long for Jesus. Alexander Schmemann has this beautiful quote. He says that man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God, and behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. In other words, this whole, you know, realm of desires that get us up in the morning and get us going through our day, many of them are, are good and right, but they are all an echo of a deeper hunger that we have. They are all providing a hint of a deeper hunger. Our longing for friendship is a good longing, but it's ultimately an echo of a deeper hunger, a deeper desire to know and to be known by God. Our longing for purposeful and meaningful work is a good desire, but it's ultimately an echo to be in union with the king of all creation and to bask in his glory. The longing to be safe and secure is right and good, but it's ultimately a longing, an echo of a deeper desire to be safe and near to your God, not fearing a thing. And so Jesus is not just the substance that keeps us alive. He is the feast for our lives. And so as we prepare to come forward and take communion, today I got a real thing for you, a real gift. We've got some real bread up here. And I want you to take it and to savor it, knowing that that is an echo of what we need to be doing with our lives, which is savoring the feast that is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come forward today and we respond and we sing, we take communion, that we would do so with a, with a heart of celebration and feasting, that we are coming to your table and that as we savor that bread, we're, 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 we're getting a glimpse of what our heart really longs for. Let the savoring of that bread and of the wine be a way of, of encountering you, the one who is our bread of life, who satisfies our hunger and quenches our thirst. God, I pray that we would recognize your presence with us in all of life. Your longing for us to step into your, your mission and your desire for us to join you in it, to love others well. That we need you to sustain us in everything. And that you are not just functionally helpful, but you are deeply good. In Jesus' name, amen.